This is Marcus Slayton and Madison Delier with your local news. Coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. And here are tonight's headlines. A GOP-authored proposal will no longer include a measure that would have required schools to hold back students to receive the lowest reading proficiency schools. Joel Kitchens of Sturgeon Bay, a co-author of the legislation, said that the requirement was removed to reduce the odds of the bill being vetoed by Governor Tony Evers. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the measure was a part of a larger bill that seeks to spend $50 million to hire reading coaches and cover the cost of reading curricula in Wisconsin schools. In addition, the bill would create a literacy office made up of nine people that would recommend literacy instructional material to schools. Dane County NAACP leaders are calling on UW Health to make Juneteenth a paid holiday for employees. A press release from group site from the group sites, CDC data that shows Wisconsin has the worst black infant mortality rate in the nation. The NAACP says commemorating June 19th would ensure a diverse workforce and create a welcoming environment. UW Health Statistics for 2022 cite that only 8% of management staff and 15% of non-management staff are people of color, despite Dane County's population being 22% people of color. A plane crash in Watertown took the lives of a 73-year-old man and his 8-year-old grandson. The crash occurred about, about 9 a.m. yesterday on the northwest side of Watertown near the high school. According to the fe- Federal Aviation of Administration, a single-engine plane had just taken off from the area airport a few miles to the south. One witness tells Milwaukee TV station WISN that he ran to the crash scene but could not lend assistance because of the intensity of, of the fire. Smoke from Canadian wildfires has prompted the Department of Natural Resources to issue an air quality advisory for much of southern Wisconsin. The advisory recommends that older people, children, and those with heart or lung disease avoid intense or prolonged exertion. The advisory affects most of Wisconsin and will remain in effect through midnight Saturday. The Wisconsin Institution for Law and Liberty, a conservative legal firm, has filed a complaint against the Sun Prairie School District. That's after an incident in which four students say that they were exposed to an unclothed 18-year-old transgendered student in the shower at school. Attorneys for the institute say that four freshman girls were discriminated against and that the school failed to follow federal Title IX requirements. District officials say that the accounts of the incident are incomplete and inaccurate. The incident has also reached the national stage. AUS House Committee on Education has ordered the U.S. Department of Education to launch an inst- investigation into the incident, reports Channel 3000. A position at Operation Fresh Start has been re-implemented in the Madison School District's next budget, reports the Capital Times. The program helps 16 to 24-year-olds earn their high school diplomas and driver's licenses while they get work experience. In March, administrators proposed to cut the position due to financial constraints. The decision drew community opposition at a school school board meeting in May. And now, on to today's top stories. After nearly two months of negotiations, the state legislature passed their shared revenue bill last night, bumping up the amount of funding local governments will receive from the state. While the city of Madison will only get a minor bump in aid, 
Other area municipalities say the bill would be a major lifeline after two decades of decreasing aid from the state. WRT producer Nate Wikihout has more. The state legislature passed their shared revenue bill last night, increasing state aid to municipalities across the state. The bill, passed by both the Senate and later the Assembly last night, mostly mirrors the bill put forward by Republicans earlier this year, with minor revisions mainly focusing on Milwaukee County that came after closed-doors negotiations between top Republicans and Governor Tony Evers. One change not pertaining to Milwaukee County increases the minimum boost that could be sent to municipalities with populations less than 110,000 people. In the original Republican bill, these municipalities were guaranteed a 15 percent increase. The now-passed bill raises that minimum to 20 percent. Only two cities in Wisconsin have a population greater than 110,000 people, Madison and Milwaukee. The bill did receive some bipartisan support, with six Democrats in the Senate, including Madison Senator Melissa Agard, voting in support. In the Assembly, 13 Democrats joined 55 Republicans in voting yes. The largest provision in the bill would set aside one cent of the state's five-cent sales tax for shared revenue payments. That means that if the state takes in more in sales tax in the coming years, that state aid would also increase. In all, the bill would increase state aid to local governments by $275 million. It would also impose caveats on municipalities for how they can use that funding. Shared revenue, or the money sent from the state to local municipalities, has dropped significantly over the past three decades. The Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan research organization, found in June of last year that shared revenue has dropped over 60 percent in that time when adjusted for inflation. This decline in state aid has put increased pressure on municipalities' budgets. The Associated Press reports that if the shared revenue bill is not signed into law, the city of Milwaukee could face bankruptcy as soon as 2025. Madison has seen its own share of financial worries, as the city's finance director, David Schmidicke, says that they estimate the city will face a $40 million deficit in five years. He says that the shared revenue bill, which would increase state aid to Madison by around $2 million, doesn't go far enough to help. If you look at the amount of shared revenue the city received uh, over 20 years ago, that was about $10 million. And right now the city receives under $5 million. So in that 20-year period, that aid, or over 20-year period, that amount of aid was cut in half. If we look at uh, what inflation would do to that aid amount over the sort of intervening 20 years, Madison would be receiving around $17 million. With what Madison's currently getting, plus what's in the new money that's in this bill, we'll get about $7 million. And so you can see um, that's less than half of the uh, aid amount we would receive if it had simply grown at the rate of inflation over the past 20 years. The shared revenue bill amounts to less than $10 per Madison resident on city spending. In a press release yesterday, Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway had a measured response saying the compromise bill is a continuation of punitive Walker-era restrictions on local governments. Surrounding municipalities were more optimistic. Luke Diaz is the mayor of Verona. He says that, though he isn't certain exactly how much more Verona would receive, any amount of increased aid is helpful. In, in general, we're try, trying to hold property taxes to, to a reasonable level and, and be pretty careful financially. And I think, I think we've done that. So we have 
a little bit of space, but it just feels like everyone has so little margin for error or for anything to go wrong. So hopefully this will be helpful for, <laughs> for everyone who lives in the real world where sometimes things go wrong that are out of our control. Chad Brecklin is the administrator for the city of Fitchburg. He expects Fitchburg to receive an increase of around $800,000 in shared revenue. He says that he too is excited to watch how the increased funding will help his city. Does it allow us to do uh, all of the things that we would like to do? Perhaps not, but uh, again, we're grateful for the increase and uh, the acknowledgement that uh, with the, the stagnancy of local government funding through shared revenue over the last two plus decades, that there's been an, uh, an enhancement and an increase for us. Some Prairie Mayor Paul Esser says that though he is not sure how much of an increase they are expecting, the increase in aid will help the city continue to operate at optimal levels without having to raise taxes. So Sun Prairie has been fortunate. We've had a lot of growth in Sun Prairie and that provides us some with the, some advantages. Those advantages we're going to be using up here in the next couple of years. So we will be getting to the point in Sun Prairie that you saw recently with Monona and Middleton where they had to do referendums in, in order to hire more police department staff. Someday Sun Prairie will get to a similar situation. And so efforts like what the legislature is doing here may help that in the future. I think it's all good. Monona Mayor Mary O'Connor echoes the other mayor's sentiments and says that she has an idea of how she plans on using the increased funding. Well, I think we're going to be able to give our employees some decent raises with inflation. You know, that's we're really getting less and less competitive with other communities because we're so limited in how much we can increase what we tax for for operating purposes. So this will definitely make things um, easier for us to deal with. That's for sure. Monona is slated to receive an additional $200,000 in state aid under the bill. That bill now heads to the desk of Governor Tony Evers, who will likely sign it into law. If signed into law, municipalities would begin seeing the increase in state aid next year. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wegehout. The growing tide of anti-LGBTQ plus legi legislation in the United States has prompted Dane County supervisors to pen a resolution declaring that the county is a sanctuary for trans and non-binary folks. The proposal comes before the board tonight, but what would a sanctuary entail? Here's WORT reporter Faye Parks. The resolution would signal the county's support for gender expression and affirming care, and declare Dane County a safe place for trans children and adults and their families. Supervisor Rick Rose of Madison is the resolution's primary sponsor. He says tonight's resolution is just the beginning of a larger effort to shield transgender people from a growing nationwide tide of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation. And so we looked at what the state does over this issue, what the county does, what the city does, and we figured out the best we could do for the county is create a sanctuary. So I look at it is just drawing a circle around the family unit, whatever that looks like, for a trans-identifying child and their family to work out these issues themselves. They have enough on their mind as, as a 13-year-old kid I did, and I'm not trans. Uh, as a queer man, I have certainly had my own issues. So that's the impetus to say, hold back everybody. We're not gonna, we're gonna make a message and say, you're safe here while you guys figure out your lives. The resolution is essentially a blanket promise to protect the freedom of transgender people and a preemptive strike against potential legislation in Wisconsin modeled after conservative efforts in other states. Supervisors reference an ongoing tally of bills that seek to curtail fundamental rights for LGBTQ plus people, whether through health care, education, or freedom of expression. 
According to the latest count from the ACLU, 430 bills of this nature have already been introduced nationwide in this legislative cycle. Today's resolution follows a model set in Kansas City. In early May, their city officials outlined the ways in which they could offer protection to transgender and non-binary people, particularly concerning gender-affirming care. But local leaders have limited power when it comes to law enforcement. The language of the Dane County Board's resolution urges the sheriff to make enforcement their lowest priority. Supervisor Dana Pellibon of Fitchburg, a sponsor of the resolution, says, We cannot, we cannot force constitutional officers to do anything. The Dane County Board has passed similar resolutions on other issues. Last year, after the fall of the federal abortion protections, the board codified a promise to protect abortion access. But that resolution is breakable if a future Dane County Sheriff or District Attorney decided to change course. A.J. Hardy, the Program Director of Outreach LGBTQ Plus Community Center in Madison, says that Dane County has already been something of a sanctuary for transgender people. In his experience, transgender people migrate here and form communities of mutual support. He says that public backing from law enforcement would be encouraging in light of the board's limited jurisdiction. The next step to me really is going to be getting that visible vocal support from the Dane County Sheriff, Calvin Barrett, and from our district attorney and those local law enforcement agencies, you know, to get them on paper, too, saying that they are pledged to show their support of the LGBTQ plus community, um, that they are, you know, willing to make enforcement of any anti-trans laws that would get past the lowest priority so that we know that not only are we kind of protected by the spirit of the resolution, but also by the letter of the law. If passed, tonight's resolution could potentially impact county contracts. Supervisor Pellibon says it could come into play when Dane County seeks services from private companies. Let's say there is a a health organization that we have a contract with. And that health organization says, if somebody is getting uh, gender-affirming surgery, we will not provide them care. That would be a contract that then we could say, we will not enter into a contract with you because you are not guaranteeing gender-affirming care. The resolution has become a national target already. Supervisor Rose says there's already been a serious uptick in negative calls that leave little room for constructive conversation. The hate that we're receiving from the people, you know, that are opposed to it is vehement hate. This isn't minor hate. I would say of the 200 emails that I fielded in the last 24 hours, the majority of the naysayers, there were two incredible conversations that came of it, right? That, that there were people that I picked up the phone, we talked it through, we didn't end the conversation seeing eye to eye, but they were, they were, they were not mean and they were not hateful. If the majority of these 200 messages that are coming to us as board supervisors are hateful using words like groomers and mutilators, can you only imagine what a trans family feels like? Conservative lawmakers like Representative Barbara Dittrich of Oconomowoc have already made their disapproval known. She says, quote, the trans agenda is absolutely harming kids, unquote. Some of her Republican colleagues in the legislature tell conservative news outlet The Federalist that Dane County could face financial consequences if this resolution passes. Supervisor Rose adds that he and local officials are organizing a queer pride caucus. He says that spotlighting voices in the community will go a long way in innovation and understanding. I think we as a community know this is just the first step. It's not the be all and end all, but how nice it is to have a community, people on both sides of the equation, start a conversation that I don't think will just end tonight. I think it will begin tonight after the vote. The Dane County Board meets tonight at 7 p.m. Also on their agenda is a special resolution to recognize Juneteenth next Monday and today as World Elder Abuse Awareness Day. 
Other measures up for consideration include setting a time limit for registered speakers at committee meetings and awarding a nearly $2.3 million contract to update windows at the city-county building. Another measure before the board tonight is whether to allow county lawyers to get involved in litigation around electric and natural gas rate increase proposals from MG&E and Align Energy Company. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Back in April, while crafting next year's budget, the Madison Metro School Board offered staff a 3.5% wage increase. Saying that 3.5% didn't even match inflation, the Madison Teachers Union called on the school board to offer an 8% increase instead. After around two months of back and forth, earlier this week, the school board announced they had come to a decision and they would offer an 8% increase. While the move looks to help the district retain staff, the district's chief financial officer says the increase is not sustainable. To find out about more about how the 8% increase will affect the district down the road, WORT producer Nate Weehout spoke with Ali Muldrow, member of the Madison Metro School Board, earlier today. Earlier this week, the Madison Metropolitan School Board agreed to give most MMSD staff an 8% base wage increase next school year, the maximum amount they are legally allowed to give. That comes after back and forth between the school board and the Madison Teachers, Inc., the union representing the district teachers, to help retain quality teachers in Madison schools. To try and talk through the school district's budget in about 10 minutes here, I'm joined now by Ali Muldrow, member of the Madison Metro School Board. Ali, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for allowing me to join you here on WORT 89.9 FM. Of course. Now, just to, just to start things off, uh, why, why did the school board agree to offer that 8% wage increase to, to MMSD staff? I think that the, the majority of the board felt that the most strategic investment we could make at this time, the most stabilizing investment we can make at this time is in our educators. And I think that, you know, when you're talking about cost of living, you're talking about making sure people's wages increase with inflation, that people can continue to afford their homes, can continue to afford food, continue to afford gas. I think the the decisions we make around how we compensate people are really important. And MMSD as an entity is one of the largest employers in Dane County. So we really are communicating a standard to, to the greater community. All right. Now, obviously, this all comes as you are working through your budget. Uh, and uh, originally, you, the school board offered a little bit less over concerns that uh, just over how much money it would cost. So now if nothing changes right now, how would this affect the the district's finances down the road, let's say next year? Yeah, this is a really important question. So the original offer made by the school district was uh, directed by the board to be 3.5%, which is less than half of what we ended up at. And that was, you know, before we had information from, from the state. So you're basing that on trends over the course of the last decade. And those trends uh, don't, don't work in the favor in, in, of, of public education, you know. And so I think we've, we've seen some, some real progress at the state level um, that folks anticipate could mean greater stability. But in the long run, you know, our CFO said very clearly, in order to make up for what currently is being 
you know, recurring expenses that we're using one-time sources of funding for, we could end up cutting as many as 300 positions. Now, going off of that, and this was brought up at the uh, operations work group meeting on Monday, how do you balance the the need to invest in quality educators within the Madison School District with the need to balance the budget? I think we have to balance, you know, our immediate reality with long-term planning and strategy around, you know, engaging our community and investing in public education. And I think that that means having integrity within our services and really making sure that our schools are equipped to serve our students and our young people. And that is the work of our educators. That's the work of the, the people in our buildings. And so um, our, our budget has to, has to work for our, our teachers. It has to work for our young people. And I think when it does, it works for the greater community. And we understand that public education is worthwhile to invest in. I have two kids in our schools, and I think anybody who parented during virtual learning realizes how instrumental our, our schools are in, in supporting families and supporting our greater community. And so, like you said, uh, if this, if nothing sort of changes here, the district is looking at potentially over 300 staffing cuts next year, I believe was the number that was brought up. Are there any other ways that the district can cut some of these costs uh, to balance out the budget? I mean, the district goes through a process of really examining inefficiencies within the budget every year. And I think the cliff of next year was inevitable in part because of the amount of one-time funding the district received through ESSER funding related to COVID-19, um, and that's coming to an end next year. So I think we're, we're up against, you know, a, a pretty, I think the, the reality of our, our budget is that it's going to take a tremendous amount of work and, and solidarity in the coming years um, for us to resolve it as a community. And now the district has held a few operating budget referendums in recent memory here. Is that on the table again for next year, or are there some reservations from the board about holding another referendum? Madison is positioned like communities across the state. Right now, our our current approach to funding schools um, has forced districts across the state to go to referendum repetitively to keep up with inflation, to be able to invest in the infrastructure that is our schools and to, you know, care for our facilities appropriately. Um, so the district has, has known that the, there was a potential for going to referendum in 2024 for, you know, since the last time we went to referendum. Now, uh, the turning our eyes, uh, you mentioned something a little bit before, the, the state legislature. Now, earlier this week, the Joint Finance Committee did agree to invest nearly a billion dollars in Wisconsin schools. Uh, does, that, does that sort of change anything with the budget for this year or uh, bring any hope to the district's budget going forward? Absolutely. It's stabilizing. It's stabilizing not because it's one of the largest investments we've seen in public education in over a decade, but also because we can anticipate what next year will look like in real time and prepare for it adequately. So that that is a, a, a tremendous shift in, in how the district approaches, you know, our, our budget right now and going into the future. And is there just anything else that you'd like to like to add? I think it's important to mention that the board heard from our community at 
a series of listening sessions this spring. And one of the things we heard over and over again is that our community expects us to invest in our educators and it expects us to invest in our classrooms and our opportunities for young people, our, our direct services and the things that allow young people to be academically successful. And so I think the board heard that loud and cl- clear. Um, and I think our budget reflects that. I've been talking with Ali Muldrow, Madison Metro School Board member, about the board's decision to offer an 8% wage increase to all MMSD staff in their next budget. Ali, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for for giving me this, this time to talk about our budget. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with co-host Madison Delier. Thanks for joining us. This week on the Out of the Box podcast, host D-Star sits down with Dennis Franklin, a navigator with Expo, or Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing. Franklin shares with us his childhood and the important work he does in Madison. What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with... Dennis Franklin. Mr. Dennis Franklin. How you feeling? I'm well, and yourself? Eh, I can't complain. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, for the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a person who is impacted by the system, uh, meaning that formerly incarcerated. I've been in Madison, uh, Wisconsin since 1992. What I do out here in the community is try to help people who are on probation and parole successfully navigate that type of uh, stuff, so, for Expo. So what's your official title? My official title with Expo would have to be Navigator. What a Navigator does is, for me, what I do uh, helps individuals who are formerly incarcerated or currently incarcerated. Uh, Whenever you get out, I'm able to help you navigate probation and parole. If you still have things going on with, like, court, I'm the person who goes in there with you so I can give it to you in plain language. Right. You know, a lot of people don't understand uh, legalese and a lot of people are not able to navigate the legal system. Right. So having had over 30 years of experience in the legal system, one of the people that can at least give you some type of clarity as to what's going on. And you also do other things. You're kind of a first responder of sort, too, correct? Yes. So what that entails, I also do work with focus interruption, commonly referred to as a FIC. What I do with FIC is when uh, someone is like shot or some type of trauma where there's, you know, violence, I respond to the hospital. Sometimes we respond to the actual scene and then I go over to the hospital. And what we do in that situation is... We are the go-between for the family and the police. We are not there for any other purpose than to make sure that the family is okay and that the victim is okay. And if there is a situation where the victim may have passed away, then we afford the family hotel. You know, they feel as though there may be some type of other retaliation. Then we help them with a hotel. We also help with funeral expenses as well. So, but yeah, we are there strictly for the family. Yeah. So I remember that we were speaking and you told me a couple of stories about being on the scene and being at the hospital and things like that. It's it's really, really heavy. So we know that that work is very, very important in the community because a lot of times we get into the courtroom we don't understand the language. You know, shout out to James Morgan because James Morgan is a really, really big advocate for language. Yes. We don't really know the language. So they're saying stay sentence or concurrent and consecutive, consecutive. and right, things right, like right. that. It's like, okay, you speak in Chinese, right. you know, it's really important for the, the work that you guys do. 
So can you tell us a little bit about your personal experiences being an impacted person? It was a long night in 1988. No. <laughs> <laughs> the wind was blowing. Right. <laughs> like I said, I have been having experiences with the carceral system since the 80s. As I got older, I had to realize that a lot of the things that I was taught was lies. Right. And when you instill certain things in young people, even if they're not that from where I come from, there is almost a must that you live up to that. And I'm going to give you an example. My mom and uh, dad have served time in the prison system. And I can remember when my dad went to prison and my older brother had passed away, I was told that I was the man of the house. Now you're the man of the house. So imagine being 10 years old and being told that you're the man of the house. All the responsibility. So you are forced at a 10-year-old boy to now put on the a, protector yeah. and provider yes. at 10. It's yes. Like that. That could screw your head up. It, it, it absolutely will because it forced me to put on a mask until my face was able to grow into it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And I lived that title, not really understanding the significance of how that shaped the way I thought, the way I've acted, my beliefs and everything. Going back a little bit to your other duties as an organizer. Navigator. A navigator, I'm sorry. And being a first responder of sorts. Is there any type of specific situation that stands out to you? When it comes to being a responder, a violence interrupter, what stands out to me a lot is the undealt with trauma. And I say that because in those situations where someone has been uh, shot or stabbed or actually killed, individuals that I have dealt with, it's clear that they have not had the experience of really dealing with trauma. The type of environment that I was raised in, you just pack that stuff. And I said that to say because oftentimes there will be people who are there to help you. And because you do not know how to accept that help, everybody and everything in this situation is suspect. And oftentimes that results in family members acting out in a way that they normally wouldn't if they was able to really just think about the situation. But then again, you have to you have to also uh, look at the fact of who can really think in that type of situation, Absolutely. you know, so but the good part about that is and I don't know good part as if there's even a such thing of that, but the the lining in that is when you have built a relationship with individuals and they know who you are. And when you come there, they know what your heart is and what your intentions are. It's a different situation. I've come across some situations where I've run into people that I know very well. And when they see me, it actually calms the situation down because they know who I am and what my true intentions are. And I think that speaks to the importance of having a relationship with the community like you guys do. Yes. You know, because everybody can't do that job. Absolutely not. So when we're talking about people going on to the scene in these types of situations where a lot of the times it's their first experience with something that traumatic. Yes. And to have a guide that you trust, a lot of people don't get that. Right. Right. And I think that that is very, very important. That's very important to uh, see someone who you know uh, what their intentions are. Like I said, we are not there uh, to share information with the police, 
We are not there to scrutinize the situation. We are not there to judge anyone. Has anybody ever lashed out at you? Not me specifically, but there has been situations that has gotten a little testy. How do you guys deal with that? It's a culmination of things. Like I said, me personally, I haven't had to deal with it. But if I were in that situation, I would have to understand. I would have to have understanding. I would have to have compassion and empathy. And I would understand that this situation is being perpetuated by emotions and beliefs. So in that situation, things are reactionary. But you, for me, I go into that situation knowing that that could always be a possibility. Right. And if that uh, were to happen, you have to uh, remove yourself from that situation right. in the sense of I'm not here to fight or upset anyone. Usually, though, when you're in those type of situations, there's someone in the family who you know you can talk to. That was D-Star, host of the Out of the Box podcast, talking with Dennis Franklin, a navigator with Expo. This was just a portion of their full conversation, which you can find online wherever you get your favorite podcast. This week on The House Always Wins, Carpentry, Raconteurs, Ali, and John discuss the pros and cons of using vinyl sliding, siding on the exterior of your house. I call it housework. Hello, I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, a place where you can learn cool stuff about your house. We love cool stuff. Hey, Allie, uh, I had a neighbor uh, ask me, they, well, they asked me a lot of things, but uh, this particular case, they asked me about replacing their siding. They were kind of tired of having to paint their house, and I totally get that. And they wanted opinions on what I thought about vinyl siding as opposed to some of the other options out there. Oh, man, is that a kerfuffle waiting to happen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you and I, we definitely have some opinions on vinyl siding. And I know that they don't necessarily align with some of the siding contractors out there. Um, there's just a lot of debate about the uh, relative uh, benefits and uh downsides of vinyl siding. What? And our opinions may not be aligned with what some folks in the industry say. I'm shocked, I tell you. I'm shocked. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, as with any product, there are pros and cons to vinyl siding. And uh, you and I, we've just been working with some vinyl siding the last mm -hmm. few days. And I definitely think that that generally gives us the uh, downside of vinyl siding, uh, actually working with it. But it does have some pros, and I think they're, they're worth considering. And, and the first pro, which is why so much of it's used, is because it's fairly inexpensive. Indeed. Um, on a house, uh, on a typical house, vinyl siding might cost about $16,000 installed. One of the closer competitors, uh, a wood composite siding, probably closer to twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars installed. Uh, if you wanted to have real wood siding, which is becoming less and less common, even way more than that. So the price is an important uh, factor in why it's popular. No doubt. The second piece of it, and this also goes to its inexpensiveness, quite frankly, is that it's a low maintenance product. Basically, the maintenance on it is washing it. Yeah. Um, you can't really even do any other maintenance on it. It's true. Yeah. And then power washing it, it just kind of makes it all nice and shiny again. Exactly. And that's, uh, that's actually one of the reasons that, that some argue that it's a green product because even though wood is a renewable resource, so wood siding would be a, a, a green product in general, 
the painting of it is entirely not a green building practice. So, you know, I, you can't paint vinyl. It's true. You can't paint vinyl. It, I know you're looking words, at me like, I know, like I'm talking like, crazy, but that she, is the argument. Saying, that's the argument that's made by the by the Vinyl Siding uh, Institute for why it's a green product. And it's, it's received some green certifications because of that. I know. And it's just like, you've got to be kidding me. They're calling, they, they the Vinyl Siding Institute, are saying vinyl siding is considered green. And that's their reasoning. To say that's a stretch, I think might be an understatement, but you know, it is fair and it is true. It is low maintenance. Sure thing. Let's talk about some of the downsides of vinyl siding. I would love to. I okay. mean, yes, yes. Let's talk about the I know you of would. Um, so first <laughs> off, let's just uh, clarify that vinyl siding is made from a, a material that's called polyvinyl chloride or PVC is the, the shorthand for that. Mm -hmm. uh, so the chemistry of vinyl siding starts with oil. Oil. You cannot have plastic without oil. So that's the that's probably one of the first strikes against it. Mm -hmm. The second is the chlorine. Chlorine. Yeah. So PVC by volume is over half chlorine. Now the vinyl siding lobby will say, well, it comes from from salt, from yes. sodium chloride. Sodium chloride. You know, it's what the oceans are full of. Exactly. Yada, yada. Just throwing salt okay. at your house. I just want to be clear that salt. Sodium chloride is a fundamentally different thing than chlorine, a hazardous gas that's been used in warfare that keeps your pool clean, that, you know, treats your water mm -hmm. to make it safe and kills bacteria. Right. But it's not the same thing as salt. No. It's just derived from salt. Now you'll, you'll um, eat salt, but you certainly won't grab the chloride, chlorine bleach from the shelf and start chugging that, would you now? So the chemistry has its issues. It's made in a place in an area of the country called Cancer Alley. So do with that what you will. Um, <laughs> they just smoke a lot there. That's all. No, that's not what that, uh, that's about. So that's that's one side of it. The other side of it is just uh, I think there's an appearance thing, and that's obviously a bit more uh, subjective. But it looks like plastic when it's on your house. It's probably pretty identifiable from a decent distance that oh, yeah. you have plastic on your house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, then that ties into, you know, vinyl fades. I'll speak to, I helped a person I know 30 years ago install vinyl siding in his house and it was bright yellow and looked nice then. And now he's just had to tear it all off because it, over time, the sun beat on it and it turned it a pinkish color. No kidding. His house turned pink oh, over the time. Sad. So very sad. And you can't paint it. Because it expands and contracts way too much, so it's, you cannot paint it. So he had to tear it all off. Yeah, and that expansion and contraction problem, it, it that's related to temperature. Mm -hmm. um, it expands and contracts more with changes in temperature. And that's part of the reason why vinyl has historically come in a pretty limited color palette, lighter colors that don't absorb as much heat. You know, let's be frank. In the cons, is it, there's not many folks out there except maybe members of the Vinyl Siding Institute of America who would enthusiastically say, hey, I really love the look of vinyl siding in my house. Yum. And the Vinyl Siding Institute is a real thing. And I've often wondered, do they have membership fees? And are they sitting around in a drawing room smoking cigars and discussing vinyl siding? Uh, probably with your senators, they're probably discussing vinyl siding. Yeah, of course, mm. it must be. It's so, true. You've been to meetings, have you then? Uh, um, I will not admit anything. And I definitely know now that I don't look very good in a smoking jacket. Uh, for I sure. That's true. Oh, okay. You're underselling yourself. Oh, right. Sorry. Sorry. Well, anyway. Where is there a spot for vinyl siding in today's today's buildings? Where, where do you think it fits? Well, where does it fit? And that's a great question. And so why is there so much of it? Um, because we still are trying to make houses affordable. 
And since people were spending a lot of money on more money on their interiors, the vinyl siding has kind of become the go-to product. And hey, we, we get it. We totally get it. Vinyl siding can help to make the cost of a building of a home much more affordable. And uh, frankly, you and I would much rather see more money being spent up front with good energy savings details, like more insulation and more air sealing and things like that. But that would be another topic for another day. Yeah. I, vinyl's biggest pro is that it's co- it, it has a cost savings compared to other um, siding products. You do have to put some sort of siding on your house one mm-hmm. way or the other. Um, so it's, it's pitches, it's affordability and it's secondary pitch is it's low maintenance. Right. Um, and that's, that's where it's going to continue to, I think, check a box for a lot of people. Um, not too many people I know are down for painting their own house and you know, that means that painters could charge almost as much as they want. Oh, it's true. Yeah. So, I mean, I've painted my, my own house one time and one time is the operative term. Yeah, one time. <laughs> That's a thing you do once. Oh God. <laughs> oh yeah. True that. That painting sucks. Let's just say that painting your house sucks and paying for someone else to paint yourself even sucks more. So all that said, there are a lot of other choices out there nowadays, like composite wood siding, metal sidings and other things. But those also might be a topic for another day. On that note, let's uh, let's wrap this up. You can catch uh, previous episodes by going to the WORT website and searching for our program, The House Always Wins. And remember, you can always hit us up with your questions uh, by email at thehousealwayswins at wortfm.org. Thanks a lot for listening. In the early formation of our nation's political party system, if you wanted a souvenir from a public event, you pretty much had to be there. Long before tacky bathrooms filled with the boxes of classified documents, political ephemera was often made from textiles. Ribbons were also handed out by political parties, complete with safety pins so they can be attached to your garments. The question then and now is, what do we do with these performative objects once the party is over? Natalie Wright is a Ph.D. student in the design program at UW-Madison. Her, fo- her focus is design history. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, Wright tells contributor Jennifer Fields that while researching historical political ri- ribbons from early in our Wisconsin history, she stumbled upon something crazy. This quilt is is a pretty fascinating example of of someone who is clearly showing that they're nonpartisan, that they're civically engaged across the political spectrum. There are political ribbons from presidential nominees, both in the in the Republican and the Democratic Party, and uh, and a few of those. So it's especially nice to look at, at a quilt like this in a moment of US history where things have been so divided. Are there nuances in the quilt that you find that were unexpected? Yeah, there were some really interesting nuances. I think for Isabel, the maker, having the year shown on all of the ribbons was quite important. Um, so we see sometimes her sewing around the the year so that it doesn't get covered up at all. It was interesting to see some of these different maneuvers that she was making intentionally. And I think to me, that tells me that she was really wanting to show her prolonged civic engagement and and her husband's. So that was quite cool. And also another note about her stitching is that she often uses 
uh, red, white, and blue stitching. Um, and, and, and that might be um, something that we could miss, but uh, it seems like a very intentional gesture on her part. The other part is that the quilt is made up of many different individual blocks, and each of these squares has at least one political ribbon in it. So we can see that she's distributing it in ways that also really give emphasis to the ribbons, as opposed to sort of only putting them in, in one section of the quilt. So what's the time span this quilt covers? So um, the latest ribbon is 1919, and the earliest is 1892 which is actually fairly early for both the four, or sorry, it was fairly late for um, both political ribbons as a, as a form. By this point in time, buttons are kind of eking into popularity. Um, and also for the form of, of the crazy quilt, it was really popular at the end of the 19th century and then lost favor somewhat quickly. So 1919 certainly is, is a little bit late for for this style of crazy quilt. But I guess one can imagine too that Isabel began collecting these perhaps at an earlier period of time when, when crazy quilts were still in fashion, um, when her husband was, uh, was in this political career in the late uh, 1800s. And then by the time he uh, finished his career, then then she put together the the crazy quilt. Would this have been something created for the family or something created for the public? Do we even know if this was a, a family heirloom or if the intent was to have it in some historical society or somewhere have some public recognition for his work? Well, yeah, the, since the last one is dated to 1919, he would have been around the age of 71. And there are so many different types of of ribbons on here. There are many related to the Freemasons, and we know that he was involved in that organization. He was a Mason um, uh, dating back to when he received his law degree. There are also quite a number of ribbons related to the Methodist church, and he and his wife were also um, Methodists. And a number from the A. OUW, which was the Ancient Order of United Workmen, another fraternal organization, and that provided sort of mutual social and financial support after the American Civil War. So the kinds of political ribbons vary quite widely, but really track his life and and his interests, um, and also Isabel's as well. So I, I think... I, I imagine it in the in their home. I think that that uh, as something that Isabel created when they were both a little bit older. There was a point at which the historical society um, gave the Helen Louise Allen textile collection a section of its um, uh, or a segment of its of its textile collection. So that is part of this object's history. Is is being at the the Wisconsin Historical Society, but we I don't think we know the intent exactly that that Isabella had in her mind when she was creating this, um, whether or not it would be displayed in their home or if it was really meant to be 
given to the given to the public. So, Natalie, we can say that this this quilt creates a sense of place that helps us understand the problematic history of the portage area. Both Isabel and Edmund also had relationships to historians in the Wisconsin area. They they both had these public lives, but also they lived in what used to be the Indian Agency House, um, which some listeners may recognize because it's now Historic House Museum here in Portage, Wisconsin, which is where Edmund was a mayor. And that has historical significance for the state and really speaks to, I think, Edmund and Isabel's role within histories of settler colonialism in Wisconsin. The Indian Agency House was, was where the individuals would live who were meant to be kind of brokering relationships with First Nations in in Wisconsin. And in many, many press uh, articles about Edmund Baker, they name him as, quote-unquote, the first white boy born and raised in Portage, Wisconsin. So he's viewed as as this historical figure at that point in time. And I think that, you know, in ways that, that we can really problematize now to think through the, the framing of, of his historical role uh, as sort of being this kind of so-called like first pioneer in in the Wisconsin region, when in fact, you know, we know that, of course, settler colonialism um, led to cultural genocide and huge amounts of, of violence against First Nations groups in Wisconsin and their forced dispossession. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Your headline writer was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter tonight was Faye Parks. Special thanks to feature contributors D. Starr, John Stephanie and Ali Barini, and Jonifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Madison Delier. Stay up to date with WRT local news podcasts. Subscribe on iTunes podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you may get your podcasts. Up next is the prequel notion machine. Good night.